So good. Well, it's good to be with you again, my friends. If you have your Bibles, we're in John. We're going to cover chapters 2 through 7. So we're going to skip a rock kind of throughout this narrative a little bit. Um, If you recall, yesterday morning, which feels like 10 years ago, we talked about the truth of our God. Last night, we talked about the truth of our scriptures. What I'd like to talk about here this evening is the truth of our Jesus. Uh, There is no question Jesus was fully unique. None like him, never have been, uh, never will be again. Uh, But what's curious to me is in the scriptures, as you read through the gospel accounts, he spends 30 years in relative obscurity. Uh, We don't know of his middle school years. There's no like high school escalades. I mean, there's just nothing mentioned. Uh, We see him dedicated as a baby. We see as like a 12-year-old kid, he's answering and asking questions to the religious leaders. So there was something peculiar about him. The author of Hebrews put it this way, though. It says that Jesus um, was made like us in all things yet without sin. So just pause for a moment and think, what would it have been like to grow up with Jesus? Like he's just one of like your crew. He's, he's never late. He, he never doesn't do his chores. He brushes his teeth like he's told. You know, he, he never mouths off. He never tells a dirty joke. He, he never does anything inappropriate ever. Uh, obviously, you'd be like, that, that's kind of different. Like never seen anything like that. Th- this was our Jesus And interestingly enough, most rabbis began their ministries, their teaching ministries, at the age of 30. And so what the Bible does for us is doesn't give us a lot about the background of Jesus, but at 30, his ministry begins, and he begins teaching, and he begins doing something very different. See, a rabbi, when they would begin to uh, start their ministry and begin to teach, students would approach the rabbi and would ask permission to follow that rabbi. Jesus did something very peculiar we saw last night. Uh, He began to call disciples to follow him. And he went after a very interesting group of people. And what we see throughout now the early chapters of the book of John is people are trying to wrestle with the question of what say you about Jesus? Who is he? And there's different sort of solutions to that, different answers to that. And we'll trace a number of those as we work through it. Um, In John chapter 2, though, we see the first miracle of Jesus in verses 3 through 5. John 2, verses 3 through 5. We'll start there. And I mentioned we're going to skip a rock. We have a lot to cover. And what I'm trying to do is pull out some of the highlights from each of these stories. And then at the end, we're going to try to connect the dots just a little bit. Uh, The first miracle is pretty fascinating. And one of the reasons um, I I fell in love with Jesus uh, reading the Bible as a non-believer is the, uh, the stories of Christ were pretty fascinating to me, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, that Jesus uh, didn't like religious people, and, and I didn't either. Uh, Jesus loved shady people, and that was me for sure. And so there was just something about him. His first miracle was awesome, in my opinion. Um, not just for the massive amounts of alcohol that were present, which definitely is part of the story, but not for the reason uh, you and I might think. Verse 3, it says, When the wine ran out, Jesus has invited he and his disciples and his mother to a wedding. And when the, the wine ran out, his mother uh, says to him, hey, they, they, uh, they have no wine. And Jesus says, well, what's, I mean, in a sense, what's that got to do with me? And he says, uh, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. We're going to talk about that phrase. It's repeated, I want to say, six times in the Gospel of John in various ways. There's a sense that Jesus is moving very intentionally never in a hurry, very intentionally heading for the cross. My hour's not yet come. And uh, you gotta love mom, by the way, verse five. Uh, His mother Mary turns to the servant, doesn't even acknowledge what Jesus said, and just says to the servant, 
uh, whatever he says to do, do it. Now the story goes on. There's a bunch of water pots there, six water pots, if I remember correctly. They hold 20 to 30 gallons of wine. Who cares other than that's 120 gallons of wine at a wedding. That is a lot of wine. Not only that, but you find out in the story that Jesus made really good wine from this water. And the head waiter is like, usually you serve the good stuff first and then follow it up with the bad stuff, but, you, but you've flipped it. And what Jesus does in this moment is, um, in a sense, allow the festivities to begin. And he shows this first miracle. Here's the question the text doesn't ask, but I've been asking. How did she know? Like, how did Mary know? Whatever he says to do, do it. Was that like a Friday night thing? Had this happened before? The text doesn't tell us. But what I love about this text is there's a sense that Jesus entered into life and, and forced people to interact with him a little differently. And verse 11 of chapter 2 simply tells us this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee where he began to manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. When you're studying the gospel of John, look for that word. It's everywhere. It's like where's Waldo all throughout the book. They believed, they believed, they believed. So there's a belief that's happening, and then comes chapter 3. Chapter 3, we'll pick up at verse 2. So in chapter 3, Jesus is now going to start having interactions with various people, now that his first uh, miracle is done in chapter 2, and off he goes. And he meets a guy named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is a religious leader. He is the um, you know, like the attorney of his day, but as it relates to the Bible, he's the perceived expert. And Nicodemus, if you'll notice in verse 2, comes to him by night. Why? Well, because Jesus is now a little controversial as it relates to the religious leaders. They don't, they don't know what to do with him. They certainly don't like him. They don't like what he's teaching. He didn't fit their expectation. By the way, the Old Testament, as it's pointing to the Savior that's going to come, expected some like big old bowed up conquering king. They, they wanted a military general. And Jesus just said he kind of didn't fit the mold. And then he started saying weird things like um, establishing his kingdom uh, through what looks to be his death. And everybody's like, I'm sorry, time out. That's not what we expected. So here we go. Nicodemus meets him at night. And, and yet he's very kind. He says, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher. Uh, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Good observation. And Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus goes right for it. Nicodemus, as a religious leader, is kind of trying to like, you're a religious leader. I'm a religious leader. We, we have a lot in common. So, I mean, can we just have a conversation about God and this and that? And Jesus is like, no, I'm not having that conversation. Something has to happen to you. You don't just approach God on your own. You don't just have a religious conversation on your own. Something has to happen. You have to be, he said, born again. And so... Um, Jesus, as he says this, is confusing Nicodemus. So Nicodemus, verse 4, says, whoa, 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 time out. How can one be born if he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb, can he? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, the, the water, the cleansing of God, the spirit of God, one has to be born again. You don't just approach God. Now, one of the things that we're praying for you is that something in your life would happen this week. Because some of you, like Nicodemus, have tried to establish a relationship with God like Nicodemus did, where you could just kind of talk about it without something happening. 
And the something that needs to happen in your life is just what Jesus says here. You need to be born again. To be born again is a recognition that you are spiritually dead and you need to be made alive by the Spirit of God and the work of the gospel. We'll talk about that here in the next couple of days. In chapter 4 now, flip the, flip the page over. Chapter 4, Jesus has an interaction with a woman at a well. Now Nicodemus said this Jesus was a rabbi or a teacher. This woman is going to have a little bit of a different perspective. Now, where Jesus is moving in verse 3 of John chapter 4 is he's leaving Judea, which is south of Jerusalem, kind of in the desert, and he's heading up to the Galilee. Who cares other than there are three roads to take to get from point A to point B where Jesus is going. The text goes out of its way to make sure you know which route he took. The easy way would be to go by the coast. The equally easy way would be to go up the Jordan River. It doesn't say that, though. In fact, if you'll notice, um, it says he had, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, we lose this. We have no idea of how controversial this was. Uh, Samaria was in the mountains of Samaria, right in the center of Israel. So cities like Jerusalem, Shechem, Bethel, um, and Samaria. So it was a mountainous terrain, lots of up and down, very inconvenient, and those people lived there. As you read through the Old Testament, in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire um, destroys the nation of Israel, and they deport all of the, uh, the men, uh, kill most of the men, by the way, but deport some and leave the women. And the men from um, the Assyrian Empire come and now marry the Jewish women living in the city of Samaria. So they were half Assyrian, half Jewish, living in the city of Samaria. That, for the Jewish people at that time, was uh, frowned upon. So they were considered like ethnically other. So what Jesus is doing is two things. One, he's taking the hard road. Two, he's going to that city. Three, he's going to have a conversation with that woman. Look at verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away to uh, Chick-fil-A to get some food. And so in verse 9, uh, there was a Samaritan woman who said to him, now how is it that you talk to me being a Jew and ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan. Now what you're going to find is this woman comes to draw water, not when most women came to draw water. Most women would go, like right now in humic is hot. And if you had to go to a well to get water, would you go at noon, ladies, or would you go in the morning or at night? Probably morning if you could, maybe at night, certainly not at noon. This woman goes at noon. What do we know about her at this point? Well, what we know is she is in some ways an outcast in her community. So she's an eth ethnically other woman. And in this culture, you didn't talk as a woman to a rabbi. And she's probably got a pretty shady past. So we're, we're picking all of this up here in this narrative. And so she's like, how in verse 9 are you talking to me since I'm a Samaritan? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you what he calls here living water. And she thinks he's talking about like a physical water. She's like a water source that will not end. This sounds great. She said, sir, you've got nothing to draw, draw with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? You're not greater than Jacob who dug this well, are you? And in verse 13, Jesus answered and says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become uh, in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And she says, sir, please give me this water so that I will never thirst nor come all this way to draw water. Now, this is one of those moments where if you were present in the conversation, you might call time out and go, hey, girl, I don't think you know what he's talking about. Like, you're, you're talking about an Aquafina, and, and he's talking about something different. And I don't, I don't think you get it. And, and she clearly doesn't. She's thinking very physical, and he's thinking and talking about something different, about what he will do in her as she begins to follow him. And then things in verse 16 get real. And this is why I love Jesus. Look at verse 16. He just, out of nowhere, goes, hey, um, why don't you go get your husband? She's like, oh, dang. And she says, uh, well, I, I actually, I have no husband. Now, most people would have just left it there, but Jesus doesn't. He goes, yeah, you, you've actually answered correctly. You have no husband. Uh, verse 18, for you've had five and the one whom you're now living with, um, he's actually not your husband. And so you've answered truly. Can you imagine being that woman? You already feel like an outcast. You're already probably carrying a little bit of shame and guilt. You're going to draw water at noon. Here's this rabbi. He's now poking at you a little bit, talking about living water, and then saying, go get your husband. And notice what she says of him. She goes, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Now that's interesting. Nicodemus said he was a teacher. This woman says he's a prophet. Now, she's kind of correct, but woefully insufficient. Would you agree? And so um, the Samaritan people actually worshipped on a specific mountain called Gerizim. Okay? The, the uh, Jewish people worshipped in Jerusalem. So she has this interaction, as you can see in the text, about, oh, since you're some sort of prophet, where's the right place to worship? And Jesus says in verse 25, um, or she rather says, I know the Messiah is coming who is called to Christ. And when he comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So he discloses to her, you're, you're actually talking to the very Messiah uh, that you've been waiting for. Now, this is the first mention of the term Messiah, the first mention of Jesus showing his cards. I love talking to folks who are like, well, Jesus never actually said he was God. I'm like, hello, right here. He's claiming to be the very Messiah of God. Now keep in mind, the character of our Jesus, the first time he reveals himself as the Messiah is to an ethnically other shady woman in her own shame. And he holds this beautiful tension of grace and truth, shows her value, worth, dignity that she deserves, and yet invites her to deal with the shadow that was inside of her, right? And she thinks he's a prophet. Now, Verse 39, if you drop down just a little bit, um, she actually goes and tells her village. It's interesting if you'll notice in the text, she goes to tell the women. I'm sorry, the men, rather. She goes to tell the men because the women um, have, have kind of unfriended her. But she goes to the men, most of which had been her husbands at some point. And so she goes to tell the men. And it says in verse 39 that many believed because the word of the woman. And then they come interact with Jesus, verses 41 and 42 Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. So Nicodemus said, teacher. This woman said, prophet. Jesus is revealing himself now to chapter five. 
Chapter 5, Jesus is going to heal a guy by the um, pools of Bethesda. Now, it's worth noting Jesus didn't heal consistently. It wasn't like this was his formula. He wasn't casting a spell. Uh, he didn't need to say, say the same incantation. Um, he'll touch a dude at one point. Somebody touches him at another point. He spits on the ground, makes mud, which is the worst, rubs it on a dude's face and heals the guy. This one is interesting. In verse 3, there's a multitude of people laying by these pools. These pools are just north of the uh, Temple Mount. There's a fortress there where Jesus here in just a short time uh, will get uh, beaten up by Pilate and his, uh, uh, and his cohort there. But uh, anyway, just outside of that are these pools. And, and so they're laying there, and uh, all of the sick and the blind and the lame are there. The question we need to ask is, why there? Why are they all assembled there? There's a Roman god by the name of Asclepius. And Asclepius is the god of healing. And Asclepius is always associated with water. So think about Asclepius almost like a day spa. You go to a day spa and, and they've got like the feng shui and the waterfall and the hot tubs and the saunas and the cold pools and the whatever. That's kind of what the worship of Asclepius was. So most believe that there was this worship of this pagan god, which is, I think, important because of how Jesus heals this guy. So they're waiting now for what the text says is the moving of the waters. Now, they think, and in fact, some of your Bibles may include some texts that talk about verse 4, the angel of the Lord, that in a certain season the pools would stir. That is, you'll notice it's in brackets in your Bible. There's a handful of texts that as we talk about the 30,000 copies of the Old Testament or the Bible that we have, that uh, it's not included in some. You'll notice it is in brackets because some manuscripts didn't have the stirring of the waters. <laughs> it's funny when you go to Israel, most believe it was actually just connected to the plumbing system. Like, um, you know, somebody like pours water over here and it drains down and now the water's moving. Everybody's jumping in, which is worth noting because what happens is this, this guy's been there now, if you'll notice the bottom of verse 5, for how long? 38 years this dude's been laying around this pool. Like, at what point do you call it? You're like, look, I'm, it's not happening. I mean, the guy's been there for like almost four decades. And so Jesus shows up in verse 6, and he sees him lying there. And uh, he knew that he'd already been there for a long time in that condition. We don't know how he knew, but he knew. And so he says to the guy, do you wish to get well? Hello, like he's been here for almost 40 years. Of course he wishes to get well. What are you talking about? And then, and then the sick man answers. And he goes, sir, there's no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. That while I'm coming, another steps in before me. And so Jesus said to him, well, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. Now the significance of that is he doesn't use the water. Because if he uses the water, the credit could go to the god Asclepius. And Jesus is just like, without even touching the dude. He just wants you to just get up. And what's interesting is immediately, verse 9, the man became well, he picks up his pallet, and he begins to walk. Now, it's the Sabbath on that day, which is to do anything good on the Sabbath like this, to do any work would be considered sin. Now, the Pharisees were so backwards, they're going to confront Jesus for doing something as awesome as this after 38 years because it was on the Sabbath. But the point is, immediately this man is well, he picks up his pallet, and he walks out. So in verse 10, the Jews who were there, the religious leaders who were there, say to the man who, who uh, had been cured, they go, hey, look, it's a Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. How jacked is that? Like for 38 years, this guy's been sitting there. He finally gets up. He's walking out carrying his little sleeping bag. And they're like, hey, you can't carry that. It's the Sabbath. They knew who the dude was. 
But they're so caught up in their religious fervor. They're like, that's not right. It's the Sabbath. And, uh, and so sure enough, they confront him on that. And uh, he says in verse 11, hey, look, the guy who made me well is the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. So I'm just stoked that I'm actually walking. And they said, well, who was the man who said this to you, to pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who uh, was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was still a crowd in his place. So Nicodemus said he was a teacher. The woman at the well said he was a prophet. This guy just calls him a man. They're all close, but again, woefully insufficient. And the question then that needs to be asked and answered is, who is he really? And thankfully, uh, he tells us. Look at chapter 4, um, verse 26. Oh, I already did that one. Chapter 5, excuse me, verse 16. Chapter 5, verse 16. So because of that, the Jews now are persecuting Jesus because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. And then Jesus makes a statement of verse 17 that gets him in hot water. He says, my father is working until now, and I myself is working, am working. And he's, he's claiming to be now equal with God. We know that because of verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were saying all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling, him, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And in verses 19 and following, he goes into this big, long explanation as to who he is, that he comes at the Father's bidding, he does what the Father has told him to do. And so they're still trying to answer the crowds this question of who is this Jesus. And it seems to be he's the one sent by the Father to do the Father's bidding. He is the Messiah expected from ancient of days to come and deliver the world from sin. And then we get to chapter now 6. In chapter 6, Jesus is going to refer to himself um, in sort of a word picture. There's a lot of names for this Messiah. King of kings, Lord of lords, Alpha Omega, Ancient of days, Son of man, Son of God. But what he's going to refer to himself here is something very, very different. And it comes after, in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus has this miraculous thing where there's like... There's no Vaughns around, and there's like a gaggle of people, at least 5,000, probably just the 5,000 fellas plus wives and kids. There was a lot of people there, and nowhere to go get food, and so Jesus multiplies with basically a snackable. He uh, multiplies the food, the loaf, uh, loaf of bread and some fish to feed the multitudes. And in chapter 6, if you drop down to verse 35, verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life, which comes to me. Uh, excuse me, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me uh, will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He's claiming to be something that satisfies like nothing else will satisfy. And in verses 60 and 61, drop down to that. Because he's claiming to be the one that satisfies, many of the disciples, when they heard this, said, look, this is difficult. Like you're, you're, you're forcing people to make a decision for you or against you. Uh, it's a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And Jesus, conscious that his disciples had grumbled at this, says to them, does this cause you to stumble? And he goes on to say, look, you're going to see even greater things. If this is a problem, how are you going to handle what comes next with my death, my burial, and my resurrection? The last one I want to look at, and then we'll try to tie it all together, is chapter 7. There was a Jewish feast called the Feast of Sukkot. Terrible name, but here's what it was. It was a, a feast that was celebrated on the Temple Mount, and uh, the high priest 
uh, would go down to a pool called the Pool of Siloam, and he would get a pitcher of water, would come up to the Temple Mount, and it's like a, it's like a dance party up there on the Temple Mount. Everybody's singing. They light a bunch of menorahs. They're having a great time, and he would pour water out, and then they would come back the next day. Same thing. Singing, dancing, pour water out. Next day, singing, dancing. Final day, the priest would do that multiple times, and it was like the culmination of the feast. That's significant because verse 37 of chapter 7. We get a little indication as to when Jesus says what he says right here. It says, now, on the last day, the great day of the feast. So this is when the party is like at its height. The priest came for the final time, pours the final pitcher of water, and it's finally like, dun, 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 dun. Like the whole thing's over. This is, this is the moment they've all been waiting for. And sure enough, in that moment, Jesus stood and cried out. And he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, just like he, he said to the woman at the well. And so he has referred to himself as now the bread of life and the living water, literally the source of life itself. So at the end of this encounter, Nicodemus, bless you, Nicodemus said he's a teacher, all right? Woman at the well said he's a prophet. Dude got healed at the pools of Bethesda. It's a man. Jesus says, I'm the, I'm the bread of life. I'm living water. People are having to make a decision in this moment as to who they say he is. And that same decision is a decision that each and every one of us have to make ourselves. Who is Jesus in your life? Is he a teacher? Is he um, a prophet? Is he a man? Who is he to you? Is he the bread of life? like the very source of sustenance for you. Is he living water or is he something else? And here's the thing. It's a decision only you can make. But as the spoken word said, there's not a third option. You either reject him or you follow him. There is no in-between. And the question I want you just to wrestle with is as we're walking through all of these various encounters with Jesus, everybody's got a different hot sports opinion as to who he is depending on their perspective, what they've seen, what's happening around them. And they had to make a decision. Do I believe he is who he said he was or not? And the same decision is now given to you. And so as you head back to your cabins, I want you to just think honestly. What say you about Jesus? What words would you put? If you were in the text and we told the story of your encounter with Christ, what would you say of him? Who is he in your life? Who do you believe that he is? And I'll just say this as I close. The reality is, as you look all the way through the Gospel of John, and it's just one book, there's so many others we could look at as it relates to the life of Christ, there is no more important question that you will answer in all of your life than who is this Jesus in your life. And my prayer as we continue our journey, and I invited you into this yesterday morning, is that as we explore truth, that your heart would just be open to just maybe hear some things that you haven't considered before. Maybe process some things that you haven't processed before. And maybe even give yourself permission that you may not be right or maybe not complete. Because some of you are going to say, oh, Jesus is this. And maybe you're sort of right, but maybe it's not quite sufficient. And until we get to the place where we understand that he really is the one sent by God to die on the cross for our sins, we're not quite there. But I encourage you to process that as we wrap up tonight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. 
and for the reminder in your word that in your name every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now we know that's who you are, but much like the woman at the well trying to process it and figure it out, some of our friends are still on that journey, so I pray that by your grace you would meet them in cabin discussion, in times of chapel, in opportunities where they see your creation, just to consider, hey, maybe there's more to this Jesus that I've given him credit for. And in that, Lord, I pray that we would come to understand that you are indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.